No, I haven't always walked through the world sounding like this. Sometimes I got depressed. If you want to learn how I got to the other side, you should listen in. Hi, welcome to Business Mindset Mastery. I'm your host, Heather Gray. Apparently, I do not back down from the hard and personal questions. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm a mindset and leadership expert. I work with business owners, leaders, and entrepreneurs over at heathergrayconsulting.com. And a listener wrote in asking me about my journey with therapy. Um, I mentioned it on a show, I guess, at some point. Um, And she was writing in to learn more about it. I had a discussion about myself as to whether or not I wanted to dive in and have this chat on the show, not because I was nervous about it or anything, but because, you know, after doing 300 plus episodes, it feels like there are so many times when I'm like, oh, I already did an episode about that. Oh, I already talked about that. Um, I did do an episode um, probably in my first year of the show called um, How I Turned Out Okay in the End. Um, and that is, you know, where I shared my initial story of having been depressed and gone to therapy. So um, it felt a little redundant and maybe a little self-indulgent to go back and do it again. But I also know that 200 plus episodes have happened since then and many of today's Today's listeners probably don't even know about that old episode and that if there's a way to um, positively connect and help and guide and encourage somebody to make really good choices for themselves, like getting help and like asking for help and accepting help, I want to be a part of that conversation even if it means I'm going to repeat myself. So if you've heard the story, you have my permission to move on. You can go to another fabulous podcast. I am currently listening to Chelsea Handler's um, Life Will Be the Death of Me and You Too. So if you need a recommendation, you do not have to listen to me, everyone. You can go listen to Chelsea Handler. But if you haven't heard the story, or if you're in a moment of struggle and trying to find your way, perhaps my story is going to help. So I'm going to read the listener question and I'll find you guys on the other side and I'll share a little bit more about myself. Here goes nothing. Heather, totally a personal question for you and it's okay if you don't want to answer. The way you sound on your show, you must know that not everyone sounds like that. You bring warmth, happiness, and also quiet confidence to how you speak to people. Wow, that's a really generous, beautiful compliment. Thank you very much. I bet you have other listeners like me who think of you as a friend that they haven't met yet. (laughs) That's rather amazing. I do that with other podcast hosts myself. In some of your episodes about therapy, you have mentioned that you yourself went to therapy. I was wondering if you could share your experiences, what you were struggling with, and what you learned. I am feeling lost and disconnected with myself and just feeling sad a lot. I've tried two therapists, but I'm not connecting as well as I feel I would connect with you. I have this theory that if you tell me what worked for you, that it might work for me too. I don't think I have any business asking this, but I also admire you for how real you are and how you have decided. And I... I, I'm sorry, let me repeat that. I have no business asking this, but I also admire you for how real you are. And I have decided that I can ask and it's up to you whether or not you want to answer. Yes, good job, girlfriend. Always, everybody, you can always ask. Um, We all have the ability to say no. But here's the thing. Obviously, as you, you're listening to this episode, I've decided not to say no. Um, my history with, um, depression and therapy and treatment of various kinds, I, it, 
I would say um, started for me when I was in the seventh grade. Um, I basically a little backstory. If you don't know my story, um, I when I was six years old, my mom died um, of breast cancer. So she, uh, my sister had recently been born. Um, she actually got diagnosed with the cancer as a result of follow up care um, following my sister's birth. Um, and she was diagnosed uh, and died within inside a year of her diagnosis. Um, and I would say that my initial reaction to that early childhood loss um, was not the most healthy and functional, but it also wasn't the most dysfunctional. I think I had a family system where we didn't just talk about it. We didn't really acknowledge it. And one of the earliest impressions I remember about this is how much attention I got because my mom died. Um, and that I, <laughs> I got out of homework assignments. I got out of, um, tests. I, you know, one of the things that really stands out is when my, I was in elementary school when my mom died. Um, and they made a, a loudspeaker announcement at the school. So the entire school knew. And so every year I was the kid in class whose mom died. I, it wasn't just this thing that happened to me when I was in kindergarten or first grade. Every single peer I had, all of my teachers, it kind of was this story that followed with me, even though my dad met somebody, remarried, and I had a stepmom and all of that. So I would tell you that for my elementary childhood years, I largely used my mom's death to get attention. Um, I don't remember being sad about it a lot. I don't, I don't remember very much other than I had a very manipulative quality to keep people close to me and near me. Um, the psycho babbler in me knows that I didn't want to lose anyone else. Um, so I figured out ways to keep people close and that if they really were worried about you and they really cared about you, um, they wouldn't leave. Um, and I think at some point that was probably my story when my mom was sick is that she just didn't realize I needed her so much or else she would have stayed. I think is probably one of the ways that my little kid brain had organized that. Um, but I don't remember, you know, going through suffering or being sad. Um, and then came seventh grade. Um, I was having a hard time in my peer group. I felt very different from a lot of kids. My dad and my stepmother were exceedingly strict in their limitations. I wasn't allowed to go over to other kids' houses. I wasn't allowed to do a lot of things. I, you know, grades were the utmost of importance. I was working for my dad every Saturday. Um, and so my peer group was really small and I didn't know how to connect with them. And, you know, sort of in turn, my, my stepmother and I weren't really getting along. She's one of my best friends now, and it's all, like, you know, worked out incredibly wonderfully well for me. Um, but at the time, she and I were, um, like, oil and water. And all I really remember is that I was dressed for school, and she yelled at me because my hairbrush was on the wrong dresser. And... I just started crying and I don't know why that moment, I don't know why that comment, but suddenly it was like my world came crashing down and it was my mom died and this is permanent, like she's never coming back. And I went into school and I was just crying and weeping and crying and weeping and I could not stop. 
I couldn't get it together. And I was, <laughs> because I was crying, um, sent to the guidance counselor, and I, her name is Mary, and I sat in Mary's office, and I just started bawling, and she didn't even talk. And then she's like, what happened? And I said, my mom died. And she's like, okay, we can talk about that. And obviously, guidance counselor, whatever, she probably already knew my history. Um, and I sat in her office for probably once a week for most weeks that I was in that school. And it was a junior, senior high school. It was um, seventh grade to high school. I really, let's see, how can I sort of organize it? Um I, I think I needed to figure out who I was other than being the kid whose mom died because I think what happened as a result of that day is I wrapped myself up in the identity of being a motherless daughter. I wrapped myself up in the victimhood of it all. I just I just couldn't get out of it. I... I went through high school as a victim, I would say. Um, that would be the feedback I gave myself. And that's probably sounding really harsh, but I promise you I'm over it and life is good and I'm fine, so don't send in the letters. Um, but I, I think that that's really how I navigated it. I don't think because my parents were so strict I ever figured out how to navigate the social circles. So I had friends, but a lot of my friends were always using me, ironically. Like, I was always the one they came to for advice, um, but never the one they came to when they just wanted to hang out. Um, so it was really hard for me. Um, in high school. I was a straight A student. I got good grades. Math and science were hard. So I always spent extra time on that. Um, and then I went to college and I pretty much immediately gravitated in my freshman year to other people who were depressed, other people who wrapped themselves in their victimhood, other people who like having insomnia was their claim to fame, never sleeping. Um, I, I don't really know why other than that's probably was my self-identity at the time and um, how I defined myself. And plus I was going to school for social work. So it was like everything was like social justice Hoorah, you know, all that nonsense. Um, and then something amazing <laughs> happened. Um, I, even though I was struggling socially, I think still in my freshman year of college, it was crystal clear to me that I did not want to go home for the summer. Um, I'd gotten very used to living on my own and having independence. I didn't want to live with my parents anymore. So the first, I, like, I was the kid who by December of um, my freshman year in college, I already had a summer job lined up that made it so I didn't have to live at home. I was a summer camp counselor and uh, it, like, took me from, like, July 1st through the end of the summer. So I barely had to be at home. Um, and I got this job as a camp counselor for uh, like a sleepaway camp for kids who were in the Department of Social Services. So like foster kids and kids whose parents were sort of in trouble for not being good parents, et cetera, et cetera. And I had this moment like early on into the first session where, um, and I know I've said this story on the show before, so I'm sorry for repeating it for those of you who've heard it before, but there was this kid on top of the jungle gym and, uh, he wouldn't get down and there were all these hapless adults surrounding him and begging him to get down. And I was like, why are we all doing this? And I climbed to the top of the jungle gym and I said, hi, I'm Heather. 
And he's like, hi. And I was like, wow, it's, it's really quiet up here. It's really still and, and, and peaceful here. And he's like, yeah, he's like, it's pretty loud in my cabin and everybody's yelling all the time. And like, I'm not used to that. I don't have any brothers or sisters and I don't want to go back to the cabin. It's so hard to sleep. And I was like, sure, sure. But what are you, you know, what are you doing managing all that from the top of the jungle gym? And he's like, well, as soon as I come down, I have to go back to the cabin. And I was like, smart kid. Um, but we came down the jungle gym and I, you know, I brought him over to his cabin and it was this crystal clear moment of knowing that I was what at that point, 19, 20 years old. And suddenly I figured out like, not only am I really good at giving advice to my friends, but I'm really good with kids. I'm really good at this. Like there were seven adults hanging out at the bottom of the jungle gym. Most of them had been here the summer before. I was the one who got the kid down. And suddenly I saw myself outside of my story. I saw myself outside of the identity of being somebody who didn't make friends easily. I saw this completely different version of myself kind of emerge. And I kind of went crazy with it. If we're going to be really honest and you want the real deal story, um, I just realized I was good at something. And I found my confidence and I found my identity and it really was as though I left my freshman year of college one way and returned completely differently. I was energetic. I was confident. I had no business being friends with anybody else who wasn't going to allow themselves to choose a different life and a different path. And I didn't want to be friends with the victim players anymore. I sure as hell wasn't going to be a victim anymore myself. And I just figured it out. I just became different when I started to see myself differently. Now, as I'm saying this, I should have probably also said I went into therapy at the college center my freshman year um, in college because I was still doing that whole, you know, wrapping myself up in depression and hanging out with depressed people and all of that my freshman year. So the therapy journey sort of continued, but didn't get better because that's all I surrounded myself with. Um, I kind of, I think if we psychobabble it a little bit, I switched my identity from being the motherless daughter to being the depressed person and wrapped myself up in that. And I don't know if you've known people like that, but there's definitely like, um, the letters are going to come in as I say this, but there's definitely a subset of people who wrap themselves up in their depression. Um, and I, I can say that unapologetically because I own that I was one of those people. Um, and then by sophomore year, I, I'd worked with so many kids who like, who had these acting out behaviors and I was able to deescalate them. And I was able to talk to them and they really liked me and I really liked them. And I just decided to let that be true about myself. Because if we're honest, there were so many other signs to this that I was good at things. I had people who were confiding secrets in me. I mean, I was I was a high school student in the 90s, early 90s to 94. That was right when, you know, young people were just starting to talk about being gay or thinking they were gay or wondering if they were gay. And I had like two of my closest friends come out to me, which I think is such a privilege and an honor to be the first person somebody shares their truth with. 
And um, I could have at that time decided, wow, I'm really good at helping people. I could have paid attention to how good I was in the English arts and the social sciences at school and how English was super easy for me and how I got straight A's in psychology without ever, you know, opening a book. I could have at any point in time identified that that was my talent and I was good and I was an exception and I didn't allow myself that choice. I wish I could tell you that journey and that decision my sophomore year and that experience in the camp like was just a moment of me saying I decided to believe something different it wasn't it just like it was this example of inarguable truth like I was helping kids and it was like inescapable that I was making it better for them so I brought that confidence back to college and I never really lost it um I sort of became I guess what you would call, I I have such a hard time saying it's work obsessed because I don't think I was work obsessed, but I definitely, um, I just was super passionate about social work and I was um, into my internships. I also was really into drama. I was working on different plays at the time and suddenly like I had like this full well-rounded life that obviously like centered around my education because I was in college. Um, (laughs) I wasn't one of those college kids whose life centered around what happened outside of the classroom. Um, but I just found myself and I liked her and I accepted her and, um, she and I became really good friends, I guess, is a way of saying it. Um, and then I went to grad school, um, and then I met a boy, (laughs) um, I met a man and, uh, we dated for about a year And he broke my heart. And it was um, my first kind of serious relationship. It was definitely the first time I'd ever told somebody I loved them. Um, And it was the first time I remember, you know, being in love versus in crush. Um, And he sort of kissed me goodbye on a Thursday um, and said he would see me tomorrow. We had plans for a long weekend uh, and he never showed up. And I never heard why I was able to find out that he didn't die because we worked at the same place. And, uh, but he, <laughs> he ghosted when ghosting <laughs> didn't have a name. Um, and it, it wrecked me. Um, and I think the psycho babblers listening will probably pay attention to somebody left me and suddenly my truth sort of went right crashing back. Um, and the leaving and the being myself didn't work. And now like I didn't manipulate somebody to stay. I was totally myself. I was totally open and no pretense, all honesty, all truth. And he decided he didn't want me. Um, that became the story. That's not my current story, but you wanted honest and you wanted real and you wanted what sent me back to therapy. And I will honestly openly tell you that I was in that relationship for a year and it put me into therapy for two. Um, I will also tell you that I repeated the same effing pattern where I wrapped myself up in the identity of being someone who was left, of being somebody who they changed their mind on. Like I was only good enough for this, but I wasn't good enough for that. Um, And that was all my story and my interpretation and me allowing myself to define myself by this one singular person and this one singular act. 
what I can tell you now is that if I look at it, there was like, and my therapist obviously helped me with this, but there were so many red flags around his ability to stay in an intimate, connected, personal relationship. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't a surprise to my therapist that as soon as we were supposed to do our first like serious couple thing, like go away for the weekend and I was going to meet his really good friends um, who lived out of town um, was the weekend he was like, oh, this is getting too serious. I got a bail. Um, and so I could have looked at it. I could have looked at all the ways he was kind of emotionally unavailable to me. Um, and I could have said, hey, listen, I deserve more. I could have had boundaries. I could have had limits, but I had to learn all of those lessons that so many of us learned when we get our hearts broken for the first time. And it took me twice as long as I was in the relationship, which always embarrasses me, um, still does, as I say it live on the show. Um, but then at some point, I just, I got over it. And I got over the lack of closure. I got over the lack of goodbye. I got over the obsessive way I was thinking about things. And I got over the idea of letting one man run my life. Um, therapy, you know, the role in that is so often hearing yourself say these things and have somebody go, is, is that really what you think happened? Is that really true? Because what I'm hearing is X, Y, Z, or maybe you can consider ABC. Now, the types of therapists I went to, I would tell you, if you're trying to sort of aspire to my experience, um, I am going to tell you that I have has less to do with the therapist and more to do with how open you're willing to be. I will also tell you that most of the people who were in therapy with me successfully would wildly disagree with that. And they would want to give me all of the credit and they would want to say I was the reason they got better. I think good therapy is a joint effort. I think good therapy is being willing to show up, being willing to question, being willing to own your stuff, and that you as an individual kind of have to know, like, how do you move through the world? And, um, you know, what I say as a therapist and even as a coach now is what isn't working for you? Um, what hurts? Like, what's open right now? And the type of therapist I was, if you're looking to kind of mimic what I do on the show is cognitive behavioral therapy um, is kind of the name it would have. So you could go on psychology today and there's um, an episode several weeks back. Um, I think it was, I may have done it in the spring of this year around how to choose a therapist, but you could go back and listen to that episode, but there's psychology today and you could um, enter your zip code to find a local provider. You could see somebody who's practicing CBT, but the most important thing I would say is if you think about how you've connected to me, if you think about um, what what I say, what I do that resonates, and I would include the... <laughs> 
in your own understanding. The episodes where I make you crazy, where you're like, oh my God, so annoying. Please stop talking. Because you will get a sense of what you're looking for in a therapist. So if you're looking for somebody who shares stories like this, who uses their personal experience in the work, you are going to have to find yourself a coach. Um, You can look up transformational coaches. You can look up life coaches. I also invite you to um, consider working with me. Um, I would gladly explore that opportunity. I don't do traditional therapy anymore, but I do offer life coaching to people when they're looking for it and asking for it. I'm happy to help you with that. Um, But I would think about what's the approach you're really looking for. What do you gel with? What are the questions that I ask that you feel like, yes, oh my God, that's the reason why I like her so much. I would think about um, the conversations I have because those are the things you can tell your prospective therapist would be helpful for you, that you really like it when somebody XYZ. Again, if you're looking to have more of a relational two-way back and forth relationship with your um, person, you're going to have to choose a coach because I didn't share any of my stories when I was a therapist. My like When I was a therapist, I maybe disclosed to five people that my husband was in a wheelchair. Um, oh, that reminds me. I went to therapy... <laughs> I went to therapy another time because my boyfriend of two years after I recovered from my heartbreak um, got hit by a bus. <laughs> that's that's the other story. Um, and I went to therapy to manage that and to find and chart my course with that. I totally forgot that. Anyway, so yes, so that's another um, part of the journey. Um, But what I was saying and, you know, kind of getting back to how do you organize this for yourself is I think that there's a way for you to think about what it is you need, what you're looking for, what's not working, Um, be willing to identify where the holes are, and then you can ask the therapist or the coach how they fill them. But a lot of times I think what happens is people show up to therapy and they expect their therapist to do all the work. So it's like, I'm just going to sit in and I'm going to wait for the questions and I'm going to answer your questions and then I'm going to, and, and suddenly they're expecting the therapist to work miracles when in fact, like really good therapy is you participating in the process. You saying, Hey, listen, I've tried this twice. I haven't connected and I haven't connected because X, Y, Z, I haven't connected because ABC, but meanwhile, I'm listening to this chick on the podcast and I feel like da, 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 da. And what I like about her is ABC. Do you think you could work with me on that? That like, I think that what ends up happening is there's a natural power differential that exists in the therapy where the therapist has power over the client. So then the client feels like they don't get to ask or they don't get to tell the therapist what to do. But so much of this comes down to everything we talk about on the show. What are you willing to do for what it is you say you want? So if you're feeling lost, if you recognize that you can't get out of your own way because you need a guide and you need a mentor, you need a coach or a therapist, um, you know, what are you willing to do to preserve that relationship? Because I agree with you that there's some people who just are no good. Um, But I also think people can become better if clients are willing to ask for what they need. So I would organize that for yourself. If you can think of a specific goal, so if you're acknowledging a pattern in your life that isn't working, if you're acknowledging things about the way you move through your world that aren't sort of helping you or serving you, the more you can bring to the table, the more efficiently and effectively your therapist will be able to help you. Um, but I, I think it's about engaging actively in that process. Um, and, you know, here's the thing about 
depression is I will tell you that for a select group of people, wanting to not be depressed doesn't affect their treatment outcome. That they can want to feel better, but they simply can't. But the mental illness is just gripping them so deeply that they're finding themselves treatment resistant. That is absolutely a true thing. It absolutely exists, largely needs to be managed by medication, and really takes away a significant amount of control from the sufferer. With equal confidence, I will tell you, most depression can be treated with therapy and or medication when needed and indicated, but most people don't want to do the work because opening yourself up and breaking yourself open hurts. The reason why we do it is so that we feel better. Every time I hurt, my instinct will be to go to therapy or to get a coach or to get a mentor. I'm, I burned out from my mental health therapy job and I was miserable and crying and I hired myself a coach to get out of my own way. And that's how you found me talking to you on this podcast. I built a whole second business because my first business made me cry too much. So it's a little bit about what are you willing to do to feel better um, recognizing there's so many different approaches. There's so many different ways to skin a cat here. You get to decide what resonates with you the most. Um, but you need to be willing to stand up for it. You need to be willing to ask and you need to choose to not be somebody who feels lost and disconnected from yourself. Um, if you happen to find yourself in that first population I mentioned where you're treatment resistant, we're not going to know that yet because you haven't stuck with treatment. You haven't found your therapist. You haven't found your person yet. So um, do that. Um, and also too, like happy to help here. Um, give me more information. Let me know where you are. I'll see if I have anybody in my network. Um, if you think a, a call with me would be helpful and that's something you're willing to invest in, I don't currently accept insurance. I'm happy to do that with you as well, but it's it, all, it will all come down to your choice. And the reason why you hear me talking so confidently on the, on the show and um, using my stories is because I've done that work. Like I've broken myself open. I have severed the artery a couple of times. I've dared greatly. I've done the work and that's where quiet confidence comes in. And thank you so much for seeing that and respecting that. That was incredibly validating for me to hear um, and to see written down. So thank you so much for that. I hope this helps and sends you in the direction that you wanted to go. I hope I haven't gone on too long. I just looked at the clock and like, holy hell, I've been talking a while. So thank you so much for joining me in this conversation and for asking the hard question. And hopefully my answer helps get you to a place that you'd rather be. Thank you so much for today. I look forward to talking to you next time. Bye for now.